And so I want to invite you, whether you're home folk or a guest here with us today, get your Bible out. My name is Pastor Aaron. My wife and I came to pastor this church 10 years ago this year. And it is, yeah, amen. It's such a privilege uh, to lead in what God is doing here. And I'm glad you're here to be a part of it this morning. Isaiah chapter 54, verse 2. This is the fifth and final week in a series that we launched uh, on Vision Sunday. This is a word that God is speaking to our church for 2023. Somebody say, don't hold back. Here's the word, the foundation of this message and all the messages in this series is Isaiah chapter 54 Verse number two, we're going to put these on the screen. If you have a Bible, go ahead and put a bookmark there, highlight it, come back to it and pray about it later this week. Here's what it says. Enlarge the place of your tent, stretch your tent curtains wide, do not hold back, lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes. This metaphor of a tent that he's talking about, God is talking about the life that he purposes for you to live for his glory and for your good. He's talking about the life that he has for you, saying, go ahead and enlarge. Just, just look, at the, look at the verbs here. Look at the actions in this verse. Enlarge, stretch, lengthen, strengthen. He's saying, take the limits off. And these three words that have become a rally cry for us really just encapsulate the whole tense of the, the verse. Don't hold back. This week, what I want to do is I want to focus in on that final statement in the verse. Strengthen your stakes. Strengthen your stakes. I like the way the, the, the NET translation has that phrase. It says, pound your stakes deep. I like the imagery of that translation because if you've ever set up a tent before, you know there's only one way to get the stakes deeper. You got to pound those things. It takes focus. It takes intentionality. If you've ever tried to pound stakes without focus, you know that's painful, right? That doesn't work well. So there's some intentionality to this. Pound the stakes deep into the ground. We've been talking through this series, going through that verse about enlarging the place of our tent, getting a bigger vision for what God can and wants to do in your life. We talked about stretching the curtains wide. Let's, let's make room for more people to come to know this amazing grace we have in Christ Jesus. And, and not just in the church, but in our own hearts and lives. Lord, stretch us to become all things to all people so that by all means, we might save some and then last week, we looked at lengthening the cords, and this speaks of the systems and the infrastructure in your life for sustaining the work that God is doing. It's the daily disciplines and the rhythms that give rigidity and structure to your life in Christ. For example, faithfulness to God's house this morning is one way that we lengthen the cords. How many of you know it's good to be in God's house with God's people? Amen. Amen. This ought, to, this ought to just make your faith a little stronger just because you got here. You know, opening your Bible Monday through Friday and, and, and letting God speak to you. Listening to worship music as you commute to work. Spending time in prayer in the morning and in the evening and around the table. All these things, they might not seem significant all by themselves, but when you start to put these things together, they become the infrastructure of a life of faith. We've got to lengthen the cords in our life. 
And the thing that I said last week, I want to say again today, is this, this is my prayer for us as a church, for you as individuals, that 2023 is the year to strengthen the integrity of your walk with Christ. The, the integrity of it. There's something of substance to it. There's a, a, a consistency to it. It's, it's what Eugene Peterson called a long obedience in the same direction. When people look at your life, it's not up and down and up down. And it's, it's not in and out, but you just know how to weather the storms. You're, you're, you, the word is there. In, when it's in season and when it's out of season, it's consistent in your life. We need healthy rhythms. Last week, uh, I had somebody Sunday night, they texted me a picture of a stack of boxes. They were inspired. I talked last week about minimalism. And the truth is to get, to get the cords lengthened in our life, sometimes we have to add healthy habits, but sometimes we have to remove the unhealthy hindrance. And so I talked about the challenge that I'm doing this month, removing something every day physically from my life that's just taking up space. So they sent me a picture of this stack of boxes. And the message uh, with the text said, these are all the things that we're getting rid of because all this stuff in my life is causing me stress. <laughs> we need to have healthy rhythms and we need margin if we're going to live a life on mission. But here's the point today. Here's what I need you to understand. Lengthening your cords is of no value if there's no depth to your anchor point. Can you imagine, you know, stretching the cords out to set up the tent, but you don't actually pound the stakes very deep? And then what happens? As soon as the first gust of wind blows, there it goes. The whole thing just folds in on itself. So, so if stretching our curtains wide in, in evangelism and in compassion and in mercy, if stretching our curtains wide is the breadth of our life, then strengthening the stakes is the depth of our life. The bigger the tent is, the deeper the stakes need to go. And we've all seen this a hundred times, sadly. It's been celebrated and broadcasted in the media every time it happens to a public Christian figure. But the reality is many people's lives have collapsed, just like a tent, because they didn't have the depth of character to handle the tension of their influence. And, and that's not just for influencers in a media-saturated world, even the influence in your own home. You might be a parent, you might be a grandparent, you might be a teacher. There are people that, that God has given you influence over, and so you need to strengthen the stakes in your life. It's time to go deeper with God. As I've been preaching this series, I, I, I want to say this again, I believe God for more. I'm praying that God would enlarge the place of our tent. I'm praying that, that God would do what Ephesians 3.20 says is ours in Christ, exceedingly and abundantly above all that you could ask, think, or imagine. So I want to pray big prayers that don't offend the size of my God. And while I'm believing God to do great things and to show himself mighty on our behalf, I want you to know another prayer I'm praying. I'm also praying, may God never Stretch my influence beyond the strength of my stakes. And I'm praying that for you. I'm praying that for our church, that God's glory would never be dishonored because our character couldn't handle the tension of the influence that we've been given. So if you have your Bible, I want to go to a few places in the New Testament today, starting in Colossians chapter six or chapter two, 
Colossians 2, verse 6 and 7, the question here that I'm getting at is, how do we strengthen the stakes? How do we take this from, from a metaphor to a practical application? And in Colossians 2, the apostle Paul explains how we do it. Beginning in verse 6, here's what he says. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. Can we just say in him? In him. Verse 7, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. So he's saying the way that you're strengthened in your faith is by being rooted in Christ, by having the stakes strengthened in Christ, by being built up in Christ. In other words, the way we add strength is by pressing in to Jesus, pressing into his person, into his character. Listen, God, God shows up powerfully and suddenly and sometimes surprisingly. And when he does that, I thank God for it because I've had some moments in my life where I needed God to just show up and come through in a miraculous way. But I want you to understand this. God's plan for your life is not that you would survive on the occasional moments of divine intervention, but that you would thrive on the sustaining power of a holy habitation. In other words, God's plan for you, his invitation to you, is not that you would collide with his presence, but that you could abide in his presence. That's, that's the heart of God. I mean, thank, thank God for the suddenly moments. Thank God when he surprises you. But I don't always want to be surprised by God's presence. I want to be familiar with it. I want to anticipate what he's doing by his spirit. How do we do it? We have to drive the stakes deep. We have to strengthen our stakes. Jesus gave a different picture of what that looks like. In John chapter 15, verse 4 and 5, he said, remain in me as I also remain in you. Again, this is not a visitation. This is a habitation. This is a dwelling no branch can bear fruit by itself, he says. It must, what? Remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Verse five, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing can't be any more clear than that. He's saying, you got to strengthen your stakes. Drive them down deep. Here's the reality, church. Nobody drifts into spiritual maturity. Like, nobody slips into an intimate relationship with God. And no one is just going to stumble into a fruitful life. You got to press in. Let me give you another picture out of the book of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 6 verse 19, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul. There was a missionary that was translating that verse. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul. Hebrews 9 or 6 19. He was translating it into a nomadic Bedouin tribal language and they didn't have a word for anchor. They didn't need a word for anchor. They were out in the desert, and so he's trying to help them to understand the principle, and so he translates the verse like this. We have this hope as a hitching post for the soul. 
And I can't help but wonder if they didn't have horses or camels, maybe he would have said, we have this hope as a tent peg for the soul. The hope that he's talking about, you can call it an anchor, you can call it a hitching post, we can call it a tent peg today, but he's saying that hope is secured in Christ Jesus. He is the firm foundation we're driving down into. Listen, there's a big difference between believing in God and believing God. There's a big difference between believing in Jesus and following Jesus. James, the brother of Jesus, said it like this in James 2.19. He said, you believe there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. A lot of Christians, they don't even have more faith than the demons because you believe in God, but you don't have a holy fear. At least they reverence his presence. He said, you believe in him, great. And and the the point he's arguing in that context is that having a faith is not the same thing as acting on a faith. Having a mentally ascending to the truth of the Bible is not the same thing as submitting your life to its authority. Jesus said the same thing in a different way in Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew 7, he gave the story of, of a wise and a foolish builder. He said, the wise builder built his house on the rock, and when the the winds blew and the rains came, the house stood firm. The foolish builder, he built his house on the sand, and when the storm winds blew and the rains came, his house, it collapsed. And he said, the difference between the two is this. The foolish builder heard the word, but he didn't apply it. The wise builder heard the word, and he obeyed. In other words, what Jesus is saying is access does not equal transformation. In other words, you're no more a follower of Christ because you're sitting in a church on Sunday morning than you are a scholar because you visit the library. Access doesn't equal transformation. Application does. Jesus said, you're wise when you hear and obey. So how do we we go deeper? How do we press in and strengthen the stakes? If you have your Bible there, go to Romans chapter 7. And while we're turning to Romans 7, let me just say, first and foremost, you need to understand this about your deeper. Your deeper in Christ is not measured by my depth. That's what we do. We we tend to look at our relationship with God, and then we compare it to the person sitting next to us or the person standing on a platform. Or worse, we, we, we compare our worst moment on Monday to somebody's Sunday morning at 10 a.m. And we think, well, they've got it figured out. But let me tell you, your measure of your depth should be this. I want to be closer to Jesus today than I was yesterday. That's it. That's what depth means for you. Wherever you're at on the spectrum of, of your relationship with God, to just say, how can I go deeper than I was yesterday? And I'm going to tell you how to do it before we read this. It's very simple. Two things. You starve the flesh and you feed the spirit. Okay, let me back up. It's not simple. It's just simple to say. (laughs) It's really not simple to do. Starve the flesh and feed the spirit. Because here's what we know. Every person is driven by their appetite. We're all driven by our appetite. The question is, what are you hungry for? The question is, what's the appetite that's driving you? So the apostle Paul, he unpacks this in Romans 7. And he describes the conflict of our appetites 
as a war that's waging on the inside of us. If you've ever wondered if the Bible was relatable and you've tried to live for God, this verse is going to solidify your belief. You can relate to this, I promise you. He says this in verse 21, Romans 7. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Don't look at your spouse. That's not what it meant. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner to the law of sin at work within me. And then he comes to this conclusion, verse 24. What a wretched man I am. You ever felt that way? You're like, I I know what I want to do. I mean, in my heart, I, I want to honor God. In my mind, I'm, I'm, I'm a servant to the Lord and the law of God. But man, in my flesh, there's this law that works within me, and it makes me a prisoner. And he says, I'm a wretched man. Who can rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Verse 25, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, in other words, here, here's... Here's the summary. I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. He said, this is a war. You ever felt that? Like, why did I say that? Oh, why did I do that? I don't know why. I I know better. I know. That's the war. He He wrote to the church in Galatians about the same thing. Let me start in verse 13 of Galatians 5 just to give you a little context about their situation. He said, you, my brothers and sisters, you were called to be free. And thank God, we praise God that we're free in Christ. But he says, but don't use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. In other words, he's saying the mantra of the Christians shouldn't shouldn't be, it's my right. Sadly, that has become... The motto. Now, if you're, you know, a politician, that might be a good motto. But he says, that's not the motto of the church. Verse 14, he says, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. I feel like somebody could testify, but I'm not going to ask you to. So I say, he says, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit. This is the war. And the Spirit, what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, he says, so that you are not to do whatever you want. Church, that's the exact opposite of pop psychology today. He says, because there's a conflict happening on the inside of you, you want to surrender yourself to the will of God and to the word of God, but you have these sinful desires on the inside of you that always want to do the other thing. You are not to do the things that you want to do. But our culture says, you know what? Your cravings reveal your character and your identity. Be who you are. Express yourself. And the Bible says, that's a bad idea. No wonder our culture's confused. You will never find yourself by following your own selfish motives. He said that's a war that's being waged and you're a slave to sin. 
There's a conflict. Crucifying your own desires instead of indulging in them is a biblical pattern for going deeper. Now, this is the this is where the sermon's gonna take a turn, but I, I've prayed about how I can talk to you about going deeper, and here's, what I, here's the conclusion I've come to. The single most practical way that you can do that, crucify the flesh and feed the spirit, is through fasting. I notice no one's taking notes anymore. <laughs> Y'all stopped writing, like... The, Maybe the idea of fasting is is new to to you. Maybe you're here and you go, yeah, you know, I've never really done that as a spiritual practice. Well, maybe you, you didn't know this, but this is actually the time of year where more Christians are fasting than any other time of year. We're we're in the season of Lent right now, which means seven weeks until Easter Sunday. This past Wednesday was Ash Wednesday. Maybe you saw some people in the grocery store at work. They had ashes on their forehead to kind of symbolize the beginning of that day. This is a season where many Christians around the world actually set aside some of their personal preferences. They say, you know, I'm not going to eat meat until Easter, or I'm going I'm to abstain from social media, or I'm going to stop watching the TV, or, or some other hobby, or some other interest. And, and by the way, if you're doing that, and that helps you to draw closer to Jesus, I'm all for it. Do those things. But understand this. When the Bible talks about fasting, it's always about food. It's always about food. Those other things, we probably should abstain from them for, for some time. But the Bible says in Proverbs 16, 26, the appetite of a laborer works for them. Their hunger drives them on. The question is, what are you hungry for? And can I just say, it's not a coincidence that in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, when Satan tempted Adam and Eve, and in the wilderness in Matthew 4, when Satan tempted Jesus, both temptations were with food. That's not a coincidence. Your physical appetite is the most practical expression of your own desires. And as we read, these desires are waging a war. Some of you are like, I know, I keep failing my diet. I, I know. Uh, right? It's the most practical expression of our own desires. And the sinful ones, the harmful desires, are pulling us away from a desire from God. There's a scripture in Hebrews chapter 12 where it looks back, the writer looks back on the story of Jacob and Esau in the Old Testament. Jacob and Esau were, were the sons of Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Esau was the firstborn, which means he had the rights of the firstborn son. He was going to have the, the double blessing from his father. He was going to be the elder statesman of the family. He was going to lead the family. We should be worshiping and praying to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau, but we don't. We worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the reason is because Esau forfeited his birthright for a physical desire. We won't take the time to go there, but he, he came in from the woods. He was famished, and his brother was making some stew, and he said, give me some of that stew. And, and Jacob, all, always being the, the uh, conniver, the opportunist, said, I'll give you some stew for your birthright. 
And instead of valuing the gift of God in his life, Esau said, what good would a birthright do me if I die of starvation? You can have it. Just give me the soup. And so writing about that story in Hebrews 12, 16, the Bible says, see that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. In other words, Esau said in that moment, I am willing to sacrifice spiritual and physical blessings on the altar of my immediate appetite. And I love the way that Eugene Peterson translates this verse in the message translation. He says, watch out for the Esau syndrome. Trading away God's lifelong gift in order to satisfy a short-term appetite. How many of you know we need to watch out for the Esau syndrome? To just, to just live for immediate gratification, a lifelong gift in order to satisfy a short-term appetite. There are blessings that God has in store for you and I that we will never receive unless we do what commentator Matthew Henry said, we have to dethrone King's stomach. (laughs) David Mathis wrote it like this. He said, fasting is a desperate measure for desperate times among those who know themselves desperate for God. That's what fasting is all about. And, And in the Western culture, we don't understand fasting. Like, because we see ourselves as, as minds that have bodies and souls instead of understanding we're a soul that has a mind. And so if it doesn't make sense up here, it usually doesn't process for us. In fact, John Mark Comer, he, he did some incredible teaching on fasting. And I want to read something that he said about fasting. He said, fasting is a whole body psychosomatic practice that is very hard for us Westerners to get our heads around precisely because it has little to do with our heads. Fasting is a way of saying yes to Jesus' work in your soul and in your spiritual formation, not through your intellect, but through your stomach. We're used to saying, let me read a book on that, or let me listen to a podcast on that, or let me attend an event on that. We're not used to saying, let me just not eat on that for a while. And yet for a millennia and a half, Fasting has been a core practice in apprenticeship to Jesus. It was not until the Enlightenment period that fasting started to taper off in Christian culture. In fact, John Wesley, who who was a pastor in the 1700s and a leader of revival in England, he refused to ordain anyone in the ministry that didn't fast twice a week. Like, you're disqualified. You 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 don't get to be a preacher. You don't fast twice a week. And the reason that he felt so strongly about it is because that was the culture of Christendom even as recent as the 1700s, 200 years ago. Here's something that he said. I fear there are now thousands of Methodists, (laughs) so-called, both in England and in Ireland, who following the same bad example have entirely left off fasting who are so far from fasting twice a week, they do not even fast twice in the month. (laughs) He, He was aghast. You don't fast twice a month? 
I don't say that to, to uh, you know, insult anyone here to make you feel bad. There's a lot of us didn't grow up in it where it's not even been a, a discipline. It's not even been a spiritual practice. Because again, it just, it doesn't make sense to us. Like, let me think about it. Let me pray about it. Let me write about it. Let me get some counseling, but let me not eat about it. In Mark chapter nine, the disciples were trying to cast a demon off of a boy who was having violent seizures, throwing himself into the fire and harming himself and they couldn't do it. And then Jesus comes and he rebukes the devil and the boy's set free. They asked Jesus privately, why couldn't we do that? And Jesus told them in Mark 9, he said, this kind only comes out by fasting and prayer. In other words, there's a powerful spiritual connection when we couple our prayer life with sacrificing our fleshly desires, with fasting. Fasting disconnects us from the world. Prayer connects us to God. So I want to do something today to make this very practical. I want to invite you into a season of fasting and prayer. And I want to take the time that I have left to just talk about practically what, what this can look like. If you've done a season of fasting with us before, stay with me because maybe this will look different for you this year than it has in years past. But specifically, I want to speak of a time period. I'm not talking about today. Some of you are like, man, I got something in the crock pot right now. Would you, <laughs> you should have emailed me on this, man. I, I'm not throwing my lunch away. Yeah, reservations, you know. I want to invite you into a season, 21 days of breakthrough, from March 12th to April 1st. April 1st is a Saturday. It would begin two Sundays from now. It would end on a Saturday. That's 21 days. And then the following day, Palm Sunday, we'll be celebrating all three of our services in one gathering at 10 a.m. up at the Performing Arts Center at Eastern York High School. We're, we're believing for 21 days that's gonna manifest in breakthrough. Now, let me just say this. There are, there are many types of fasts in the Bible. Just like with prayer, the Bible tells us to pray, but it doesn't tell you exactly how long to pray or what you should say or where you should say it. It just gives us an outline of how to pray. It's the same with fasting. There's many examples of fast. So this is not like a legalistic requirement thing of exactly what to do and how to do it. The Bible gives us a wide variety of fasts. There's, there's at least four different types of fasts. The first one is a supernatural fast. The Bible says Moses had a supernatural fast. He went up on the mountain to be with God, and he was there with God on the mountain. He didn't eat or drink anything for 40 days. Now, let me tell you, if God doesn't call you to a supernatural fast, you better not do it because you won't survive, <laughs> okay? You will die. It only happens when it's supernatural, but there's also a total fast. A total fast is to abstain from any food and just drink water. And there are instances of that in scripture. Some people would do a liquid fast. They would say, you know, I'm not gonna just do water, but you know, I still need the nutrients, but I'm just gonna do a liquid only fast. And, and again, that, that's not in the Bible. They didn't have blenders. Uh, but you could do a liquid only fast. One that is in the Bible, a fourth one is a partial fast. Partial fast, like the fast that, that Daniel did, that some of you may be familiar with. Not only are there different types of fast, but there's different lengths of fast. As I mentioned, Moses and also Jesus, they fasted for 40 days. Daniel fasted for 21 days. That's where we get this idea of 21 days that we're going to rally around from March 12th to April 1st. Because in Daniel chapter 10, 
Daniel said, at that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. That's 21 days. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. So he made some specific dietary uh, restrictions, believing God for a breakthrough, and on the 21st day, the answer to his prayer came, the breakthrough came. But there's also three-day fasts. Like when Esther was getting ready to go and approach the king about saving her people, she said, I'm going to fast for three days, and I want the people of Israel to fast with me. But there's also one-day fast, like in 1 Samuel 7. The prophet Samuel said, I'm going to intercede for you. I want you to eat nothing until sundown. Some people, because of church history, would call that a John Wesley fast. They would say, that's the John Wesley fast, you know, just from sunup to sundown. Do it once a week, or maybe twice a week. Maybe you'd even say, I'm going to do it Wednesdays and Fridays. But know this, Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 16, didn't say, if you fast, here's how you do it. No, Jesus said, when you fast. When you fast. There was an expectation that the followers of Christ would follow him in this discipline. And, and I just want to say to all of us that breakthrough, breakthrough begins when our excuses end. When we say, you know what, I've, I've got to press in to Jesus. That's what fasting is really all about. Fasting is about drawing near to God. It's about crucifying the desires of your flesh and awakening the appetite of your spirit. It's going without some things you want so that you can discover the things that God wants for you. It's a very practical and felt way of saying, I'm going to wage this war, and I'm going to yield my appetite in the most practical way. I'm going to yield my appetite so that I can cultivate an appetite for the things of God. Fasting is a way of bringing vertical solutions to horizontal problems. That's what God does for us when we, when we fast. When you get serious enough about what God can do that you actually sacrifice what you want to do, that's the kind of faith that sets things in motion. That's what I want to invite you into. I was thinking this week about the fast that, that Ezra called in Ezra chapter 8. It says this, and you don't have to turn there, but let me just read this to you. In Ezra 8 verse 21 it says, there by the Ahava Canal, I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children with all of our possessions. Now, when you read that by itself, it seems like a weird reason to call a fast, like for safe travels? Really? <laughs> like, we're going on vacation, so let's, pray. let's do a fast, okay? Let's fast to make sure we get there safely. That's what it looks like. But in reality, Ezra was leading a caravan of exiles out of Babylon back into Jerusalem. And not only were they traveling with their families, they were carrying a big offering to go back to Jerusalem for the reconstruction of the temple and the house of the Lord. So they're three days into this, and all of a sudden, Ezra starts second-guessing his leadership decisions. He's like, you know, we got a lot of cargo here, a lot of defenseless people out here. Maybe, maybe this was not a good idea. Maybe I, maybe I should have done something a little bit more. So what does he do? He calls a fast, and he says, no, we're going to believe God. 
that he's going to protect us. And what I love about that story is Ezra actually, he's humble enough to tell us why he called the fast. Look, look at the next verse. He says, here's why I called the fast. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from our enemies on the road because we told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. So in other words, Ezra could have had a military escort. Like the king was like, yeah, you guys can go back. You need some help? He's like, nope, nope, God's got us. God's gonna protect us. It's good. We don't, need, we don't need a military escort. And now he's out there and he's going, oh man, what, what if we get attacked? What if marauders come? What if, what if somebody comes and attacks us? What are we gonna do? And so Ezra's heart conviction is, I don't wanna make God look bad. Like that's, that's the bottom line. If I go back and say, uh, could you send help? It's gonna look like God's not worthy of being trusted. So I have a choice to do. I can backpedal. I can go mm, enlarge the tents. I don't know. Lengthen the cords, not really sure about that. Stretch the curtains wide, eh, maybe not. I'm not feeling that right now. Or I can not hold back. I can just say, you know what? God spoke and I moved out in faith. I'm just gonna believe God. So instead of, instead of like, you know, watering down my convictions and, and changing my message, I, I'm, gonna just, I'm gonna just trust God. I'm gonna call a fast. He said already publicly, God told me to do this. He told us to go back and he told us that he was gonna protect us. I can't turn back now. I don't know where you're at in your life, but can I just say, I'm right there. I see myself in the story. I'm believing God for some things. I've spoken some things that, that I have conviction God's gonna do. I'm praying that God does some, some great things. This is not a moment to start surveying the land and, and, and backpedaling on our convictions. This is the time to say, God has spoken. He's able to do it. I'm not going to hold back. I'm going to walk by faith. I'm going to fast. I'm going to strengthen the stakes. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to believe God for a breakthrough. I'm going to stand on the promises that he's made, and I'm going to believe what he's already spoken, and I'm going to move forward with confidence. Now, look at the next verse, because it says this in verse 23. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayer. And to that I say, do it again, God. Do it again. Amen. Do it again. James said this, draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Don't hold back. As the worship team comes, let me, let me tell you another story, not a biblical one, but one from our church. Two years ago, we did a Daniel fast as a church where we abstained from certain foods and followed a separate diet and Carrie Palacios is a member of our church. We have a picture of her and her son, Josiah, we'll put up here. Two years ago, during the 21 days of breakthrough, I challenged the church to just trust God, to believe God, and, and Carrie participated in this. It ended on the Saturday before Palm Sunday, and she emailed me on Good Friday. She said, I just wanted to send a thank you on this Good Friday. Thank you for challenging the church to do the Daniel fast. I am now smoke-free. Amen. She said, now you got to hear this part. She said, during the Sunday service before the fast, 
I reviewed the list of things to fast from. You know, we, we put like a whole packet together. Like, here's what you can eat. Here's what you can't eat. She said, I reviewed the list and I thought, well, I eat right and I exercise, so I'm good. Then God spoke directly to me through you when you said from the platform, maybe you can say no to the Oreos, but you can't put down the nicotine. She said, I knew it was my time. So thank you and happy Good Friday. It's overwhelming when I ponder what Jesus did for me on Calvary. I love that she put that in there because it reminds all of us that fasting is not about the food. It's about the presence of the one we're seeking in replacing the food. I'm overwhelmed with what Jesus did for me on Calvary. She said, I'm sending this picture because it reminds me of two things about the addiction to cigarettes. I used to go to the grocery store and I had to compare prices on items that we needed. Then I'd go to the convenience store and I'd spend over $7 to literally watch it go up in smoke. I'd be so angry at myself. And Josiah would always say, when are you going to quit, mom? You're going to die. She said, it's really hypocritical to tell your child not to do things that will harm them when you're doing harmful things to yourself. And then Carrie added this. She said, if someone senses God speaking to them about fasting from something, do it. He will provide the grace you need for the 21 days. And if it's a destructive behavior like smoking, he will eradicate your desire to never be enslaved to it again. Amen. Let me give you one more testimony from last year. We fasted during this time as a church. And Thatcher and Ashley Dans are some of our kids' ministry and youth leaders. Ashley wrote this. She said, well, you might remember I wrote one of the devotionals for the 21 days of fasting last year. And my devotional was about how God is never late and his timing is perfect. And we just have to trust God with his timing. When I wrote it, she said, I just thought this sounds good. But I didn't really think too much about it. Then in my own life at that time, I was dealing with the hopelessness of not getting pregnant and being so convinced that I was pregnant in late February only to find out yet again I wasn't. I had given up all hope and I was just very angry with God. So I decided for fasting and prayer that I was going to let go of everything I wanted and just draw closer to Jesus. Then when my devotional video popped up on social media, I watched it and for the first time, it really hit me that I was writing that for me. She said, it was exactly what I needed to hear in that moment. Now, I was still struggling with it, but trying really hard to just be okay with this not being God's timing for us to be pregnant, even though we had been trying for years. Then, the very last week, of the fasting and prayer, I felt God telling me to trust him and to take another pregnancy test. She said, I fought with him that whole week in our prayer time because I was too scared. I knew that if I got one more negative test, it would truly break me. I didn't want to be let down again. But finally, on Friday, April 8th, the 20th day, I knew God had done a work in my heart because I was actually excited 
to take the pregnancy test. So I took a test and I was shocked that it was positive. <laughs> she said, and later I found out that I actually got the positive pregnancy test at only three weeks and one day, which is unheard of, but God knew that it was just what I needed in that very moment. And he continued to surprise us with things like that that reassured us throughout the entire length of our pregnancy. And in case you don't know Thatcher and Ashley, nine months later, I want you to see a picture of the answer to prayer. God brought little Bowden into their life. Amen. When God says enlarge the place of your tent... Stretch your tent curtains wide. Don't hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. He knows what he wants to do in your life. There's a reason he's speaking to you. But you've got to strengthen the stakes. You've got to press in to Jesus. Don't get caught up in the, the mechanics of, of what the fast looks like. I want to challenge you at the end of this service to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. Again, I'm not asking for an impulsive response. We're not starting today. But ask the Holy Spirit how he wants you to lean in to 21 days of breakthrough. Beginning in two Sundays, March 12th, to say, God, I, and maybe it'll be a Daniel fast. Or maybe you'll say, I'm going to fast from sunup to sundown one day every week. Or maybe every day you'll skip a meal and say, I'm just going to open my Bible and I'm going to spend my lunch break seeking the face of God. But let God speak to you. We'll have resources on our website of what that can look like in the coming days. But I want to challenge you to get to the heart of what it means to strengthen your stakes. And I want to pray for us at the end of this service, a prayer of consecration that we would say, God, we're going to do these things that you're calling us to. If you could put that verse up one more time, Isaiah 54 and verse 2. And that we can just let this be the prayer of our lives. God, I will enlarge the place of my tent. I will expand my vision, my faith, my belief for what you can do, for what you want to do in my life and through my life. God, I will stretch my tent curtains wide. I don't need a new tent. I don't need more talent. I don't need more money. Lord, I just need to be willing to be stretched. God, stretch my faith. Stretch me in humility. Give me a, a greater capacity of compassion and mercy. Lord, I'm not going to hold back. I'm not going to make excuses. I'm not going to put off for another season or another year. I'm not going to hold back on what you're saying. God, I'm going to lengthen the cords. I'm going to create patterns of structure and integrity in my relationship with you. I don't want to be like that foolish builder where everything looks good on the outside until adversity comes. And then my faith collapses. God, I want to strengthen the stakes. I want to press in to the firm foundation that is Jesus. 
Give me more of Jesus. Give me less of my ambition, less of my sinful desires, less of my earthly pursuits. Give me more of Jesus. And I want you to know, church, what what God says will happen if if this will be the prayer of our heart. Go ahead and put verse 3 up there. The next verse, God says to his people, you will spread out to the right and to the left. In the King James Version, it says, for thou shalt break forth on the right and the left-hand side. In other words, breakthroughs coming all around. If you'll do this, if you'll believe, if you'll press in, breakthrough is coming all around. Your descendants will dispossess the nations. In other words, if you'll honor me, I'll do something that's multi-generational. I'll do something that's going to bear fruit that lasts. That's what Jesus said he's called us to, to produce fruit that lasts. It goes on to say, and your descendants will not only dispossess nations, but they'll settle in their desolate cities. In other words, it's not going to be just a, a flash in the pan thing that God does and we can look back and go, wasn't it cool when God did that? No, he said, I'm going to change the landscape. They're, they're going to settle in. Territory that the enemy has set up camping, that's becoming the people of God's. He said, I'm settling in the land. And we're seeing that already. Do you see God is on the move in America right now? And we can sit back and we can be a skeptic and a critic or we can press into Jesus and say, whatever you're doing, that's what I want to be about. Would you stand with me all over this room? This worship team's going to lead us as we just sing this again to the